As little kids, our experiences with mommy and daddy are generally straightforward. You know, parents see to it that good deeds are rewarded and that bad deeds are punished. But then we move out into the real world and we discover that's not always how life pans out. Oh yes, God is always good and fair, but life is often cruel and unjust. Bad things do happen to good people. Bad people often get away with their crimes. Circumstances are not always just. Life isn't always fair. And here Job is the classic example. Here the best of men suffers the worst of circumstances. You know, if I could give tonight's chapters a title, I would call them the tragedy of a restricted theology. Job and his friends had what I call a kindergarten theology. In other words, it failed to take into account the sovereignty of God. Hey, one day, good will be rewarded and evil will be judged. God will see to it. But in the meantime, in the in-between time, in this sometimes tough and tumbled time that we live in, in the meantime, God is tolerating sin and suffering and injustice. God is sovereign over it. He allows it. And what's more, He even sometimes uses the evil in the world for His own divine purposes. In other words, just because life gets rough doesn't mean God isn't in control. You see, in a sense, a kindergarten theology isn't necessarily incorrect. It's just incomplete. Our confidence in God's justice should never waver. Eventually, righteousness will be rewarded. Wickedness will be punished. God will see to it in the end. But a kindergarten theology is inadequate for explaining life in the here and now. Especially those rough spots in life. If you haven't noticed, life is full of inconsistencies, and contradictions, and incongruities. From our perspective, life doesn't always make sense. Two plus two doesn't always equal four. You know, Billy Graham, he plans an outdoor crusade to lead thousands to Jesus. And what happens? It rains. While the sun shines on the gay rights parade. I mean, what's up with that? The person with the kindergarten theology is tempted to think that God has fallen asleep at the controls. But God is sovereign. God makes no mistakes. He controls both the good and the evil. And He has a good reason for all that He does, even when that purpose isn't revealed to you and me. Here's the problem. A restricted theology fails to embrace God's sovereignty. And a restricted theology always ends up with a tragedy of faith. It always produces a crisis of faith. For if you believe that good is always rewarded and evil is always punished, you end up trapped by this kind of thinking. What happens when life beats you up unfairly? Or you do something for God only to have it rain on your crusade? How do you react? Well, we can blame the devil. We can even blame a fallen world. 
But isn't God in the long run big enough, strong enough to overcome satanic strategy, even human error? Of course He is. And yet it still rained. You still got beat up. And you see, if you hold to this kindergarten theology, you're left with only two choices. Either God failed to do His job, or you did something that displeased Him. Either God failed, or you're a failure. In both ways, in both ways, faith gets sabotaged. You know, some people give up on God. You ever heard someone say, oh yeah, yeah man, I tried God. You know, I, I tried that Christian thing for a while. It just didn't work for me. As if God were some kind of blessing dispenser, some kind of a slot machine, you know. You plug in the right move and then you get out the desired result. Other people, they end up condemned. They try their best. They, they work hard. They, they desire the right results. And, and when it doesn't turn out the way they had hoped, they conclude that there must be something wrong with them that God just can't bless. That for some reason they've done something so horrible and they end up condemned and feel guilty. Beware. A theology that doesn't embrace the sovereignty of God is a restricted theology. And it will eventually lead to a crisis of faith. And Job here is the classic case. You know, when Job's life was struck with calamity, his friends all concluded that he must have sinned. Oh my, since Job's losses were so catastrophic, he must have really sinned. Of course, the first two chapters in the book of Job tell us that wasn't the case at all. They tell us that Job's sin was not the cause of his calamity. No less than God Himself affirms Job's innocence. You see, there was another reason. God had pointed to Job as an example of a pure and sincere faith. Job had been given the honor of defending God's glory in heaven without being told. Job would prove to Satan himself that God was worthy to be worshipped for no other reason than who He was. What a noble cause. The problem, though, is that Job never had the opportunity to read the first two chapters of Job. Job was given the job of proving God's greatness. Take away the blessings, and Job will still worship God. One author reminds us, the secret in Job, the vital force, the nerve, the idea, is that Job, despite everything, is in the right. Job really is innocent. And Job's confidence in his innocence never rattles. Job assumes that there's another answer. His friends are accusing him of this and that, true and false. But Job is confused. He knows he's innocent. His kindergarten theology can't account for what's happened. But he knows there's got to be an explanation. And seeking an explanation, asking why, in fact, screaming why becomes the burning issue in Job's life. Did you know the question why is not something you can ask quietly? You usually end up screaming, why? Why has this happened? And that becomes Job's task. He's relentless. He is asking God. He is pounding his fist. 
He is demanding to know why. Well, two of his friends, Eliphaz and Bildad, they have addressed Job. And Job has offered to them his rebuttal. Now a third friend, so-called friend, you're going to question whether he's a friend at all by the, when he, as soon as he opens his mouth. But now a third friend, a man by the name of Zophar, well, so far he's been quiet. But now Zophar, he takes a crack at accusing Job. Chapter 11. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? That's a nice way of saying, Job, you're full of baloney. Just because you can talk a lot doesn't mean you make sense. Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? <laughs> should your empty talk make men hold? Just because you're saying foolish things, should that mean that I should be quiet and just let you talk? You know, Eliphaz has been courteous. He's been actually been somewhat sympathetic to Job as he's questioned him and gone back and forth. Bildad was a little more frank and to the point. But this so far, this guy takes the gloves off. He is going to slap Job around. In fact, Zophar is going to make some really cruel comments to Job. Be glad he's not your friend. Zophar says, For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak. Job claimed to be innocent of wrongdoing. But if God were to appear, if God were to speak, He would nail Job to the wall. God would expose his sin, according to Zophar. If God opens his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. He's saying that Job is a foolish man, that if God actually shed his light of truth, it would double Job's wisdom. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Wow! Talk about a harsh comment. This Zophar is spitting out razor blades. Think about it. Job's ten kids, ten kids are dead. I mean, he's just walked away from the funeral of his children. The man is now bankrupt. He's lost everything. He's sitting in the town garbage dump with a broken piece of pottery, scratching his itching, oozing, pus-filled boils that are all over his body. He's sitting there alone. He's got no place to stay. Apparently his wife won't let him in the house. And now this Zophar insists that it's all less than he deserves? Be glad Zophar is not your friend. Verse 7. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? You know, Job has been wanting to talk to God. He's been calling for an audience. He's been asking God why. And this has infuriated Zophar. Who is Job to question God? God's ways are deeper than Sheol or the abode of the dead, he says. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. I mean, Zophar should have listened to his own words. The reason for Job's suffering was hidden from Job. But it was also a mystery to Zophar. 
But instead of taking heed to his own counsel, I mean, you know, he says, who, who can question God? Rather than listening to his own counsel, he proceeds in telling Job that he's committed serious crimes. So far continues. If God passes by, imprisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. When God judges the wicked, there's no appeal and there's no prevention. And it's obvious to Zophar that Job is being punished. His denial proves his stupidity. Zophar says, Job will be considered a wise man on the day that a donkey births a man. Verse 13. That's not exactly a compliment, by the way. Verse 13. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your, were in your hand and you put it far away, and Zophar goes on, and, and I'll summarize here a little bit. Zophar goes on in this vein for the rest of the chapter. Basically, he's saying, Job, if you'll just repent, you know, iniquity's in your hand. If you'll just admit it, if you'll just repent, Job, you'll be able to lift up your face once more. Your life will become brighter than the noonday. God will forgive you. Life will get back to normal, Job, if you'll just repent. Chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Job gets sort of sarcastic, doesn't he? Oh my, you guys are so smart. You're the total repository of all wisdom. Evidently when you die, that'll be the end of wisdom. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? Now, you're not, you guys aren't telling me anything new. I am one mocked by his friends who called on God. And he answered him, the just and blameless who is ridiculed. Again, Job asserts that he's blameless. Now, now remember, Job is blameless, not faultless. There's a difference. Let every, like everyone, Job had his faults. He had sinned. But you see, he had done nothing wrong to the point. He had done nothing wrong on which they could blame his demise. Yeah, everybody's faultless. But, but not everyone is blameless. You know, the blameless man is the man who, who has done nothing to bring reproach. Yes, he sinned, but not to the degree to where someone would accuse, accuse the church. You know, this is why the elders of the church should be blameless men, not faultless men. We all have our faults. But they should not have done anything that would attract blame or reproach or public criticism upon the, the work of God and the work of the church. You know, here Job calls himself just and blameless, and yet he's being ridiculed by his friends. He says, a lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. In other words, those who seek only comfort. They despise the lamp. They despise the light of truth. For, for when the light of truth is shined into our lives, it becomes uncomfortable, doesn't it? The light of God shines on our sin. It exposes us. 
Here Job has invited God to speak to his situation. He has nothing to hide. He says the tents of robbers prosper and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. Now Job is pointing out what every honest person realizes. Life isn't always fair. That there are these incongruities, these inconsistencies. Here he says the tents of the robbers prosper. I mean, how can that be? God is just. God is right. Surely God would not allow that to happen, but He does. For some reason, God does. The tents of the robbers prosper. It's obvious to Job that his kindergarten theology, which is the theology of his friends, isn't enough to account for real life. He says, but now ask the beasts... And they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth. And it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Notice he's saying even nature itself teaches you that life isn't fair. He mentions the cow. A cow minds his own business. I mean, he's just out there grazing in the field. He avoids any beefs with his neighbor. And yet in the end, how is he rewarded? He ends up a steak. A bird flies high. And yet what happens to the bird? It gets shot down. A fish spends his whole life going to school. And yet he can't find a job. Even animals know that life isn't always fair. That God hasn't eliminated all the injustices and all the inequities. But that's not a reason not to worship Him and not to praise Him, for He's still worthy. And Job is suggesting the animals are more honest about life than Zophar. He says, does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men. And with length of days, understanding. So far, you need to grow up. With God, our wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If He breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If He imprisons a man, there can be no release. In other words, God has ultimate say in His creation. And in the affairs of men. If He withholds the waters, they dry up. If He sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With Him are strength and prudence. Notice, the deceived and the deceiver are His. You know, God is ultimately responsible for both. The deceived and the deceiver. You know, He's sovereign over all of life, the good and the bad. He he allows deception to exist for, for His purposes. He leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and... Binds their waist with a belt. Notice he loosens them, but he also binds them. You know, he's in charge of both. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. In other words, it doesn't matter what happens in life. You can't interpret it as if God has lost control. He's still in control. He's still God. God is good, God is right, God is just. Life is unjust. Live with it. 
He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great, but He also destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light, and He makes them stagger like a drunken man. Job is affirming God's sovereignty. And we don't always see His purposes, but we know that all that happens in the universe is at the very least allowed by a sovereign God. There's a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, that says the secret things belong unto the Lord. There are some things that only make sense from the perspective of heaven that we'll only understand when we get to eternity. Notice here, he makes nations great and he destroys them. Again, God does both. No matter how dark and how unfair your life may seem, rest assured that God has not lost control of the situation. He is still in charge. You know, to lighten the ship of suffering, don't throw God's governance overboard. Sometimes we're tempted to do that. When we're suffering, we, we, we want to we somehow believe that God has is, is gone to sleep. You know, or God has forgotten about us. Not so. There might be a reason going on in heaven, like with Job, that we don't understand, that we don't ever see. And yet God is working out His purposes. And He's expecting us to trust Him. In other words, God is still captain in the storm or in the gentle breeze. Chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to reason with God. Job isn't inferior to these three friends. He's familiar with their shallow arguments and with their insufficient theology. They're telling him nothing new. Job just wants to go over their heads and take his questions to the boss. He, he just wants to talk this out with God. That's what he wants. He says, but you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. That's not a good thing when you go to comfort your friend and he calls you a worthless physician. Oh, that you would be silent and it would be your wisdom. You would prove wiser if you'd just shut up. Sounds like something your wife would say to you, doesn't it? Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for Him? This is... This is Interesting. Job says, you have spoken wickedly for God. You have put words in God's mouth that are not true. Be careful you never make that same mistake. So far, he put words in God's mouth that were wicked and false. Who is he to suggest that Job had received less than he deserved? I mean, Job got angry when he said that. He was angry. Zophar, Zophar was so arrogant. This is why, guys, it's always dangerous to speak for God. Has anyone ever said to you, I know why God allowed that to happen in your life? 
Anyone ever said that to you? Well, understand this. They don't know why God allowed that to happen. They might think they do, but they're just guessing. Never forget that. Don Baker writes, No one knows the mind of God but God. No one can fully explain God's actions but God. This is why I'm very careful about telling anyone God's will for their life. You know, you come to me, you ask for advice, and I kind of shrug my shoulders and say, I'll pray for you. You know, if I can point to chapter and verse, thus saith the Bible, I'm on good, solid ground. I can make comments. But when it comes to who you marry, or the job you choose, or the college you attend, or even the movies that you watch, or the team that you cheer for, or the candidate that you vote for, man, that's between you and God. You need to hear from God on those issues. You need to work it out with God. And likewise, Job wants to work out his suffering, his questions with God. He won't be satisfied until he hears from God. You know, here's good advice Whenever you counsel a suffering person, don't be a know-it-all like Zophar. Don't go busting into their lies with all these definitive answers about this and that. Oh, I can tell you why this happened. Zophar would have been wiser if he had just looked at Job and said, You know, Job, I don't know why any of this has happened. You know, sometimes the most God-honoring counsel we can give a friend is I don't know. He says, will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely reprove you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Job wants Zophar to nip it. He wants God to speak and then he'll accept whatever comes from the hand of God. Notice he says if God came here you wouldn't be speaking so glibly. If God were in the room with us you wouldn't be speaking so glibly. Your platitudes, your proverbs of ashes, your defenses of clay. You wouldn't be so bold so far if God were here. He will surely reprove you. And isn't it interesting, at the end of the book, God does rebuke Job's three friends for the things they put Job through. Verse 14, why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Job bristles up at Zophar's criticism, but he's willing to accept God's rebuke if it comes. He even says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Wow. Can you say that tonight? Though God slay me, I will still trust him. That's not kindergarten theology, by the way. That's real faith. What a powerful affirmation of confidence in God. Though he slay me, I will trust him. You see, Job has no problem with God's discipline. It's right, it's just, it's merciful. Job trusts in God. Whatever God chooses for Job, negative circumstances, 
painful, unexpected twists of providence, suffering, even death, Job will gladly accept. Job trusts God with his life, come what may. Do you have that kind of faith? Or do you worship God only for the blessings you receive? Only for the good that can come from it? Or do you worship God because he's worthy to be worshipped? Job worships God, not because God promises him a good outcome to his life. Or a life full of blessing. Job worships God because he's worthy to be worshipped. You know, even though Job was unable to reconcile what had happened to him with what he knew of God, even though there was so much that was a mystery, even though he felt betrayed by God, nevertheless, he knows that God is great. And he is determined to trust God, come what may, for he knows that God is trustworthy. You sit back and you say, well, I've been the victim of so many terrible things. I can go back to my childhood and the way I was treated or the abuse that I suffered or the way I've been treated by employers in the past or so-called friends. And, and I could tell you some real horrible stories. And I know you could. God is good, but life sometimes stinks. And, and how it all works out, why, why these things happen? You could spend a lot of time screaming, asking those questions just as I can. But I'll tell you the key. I'll tell you the answer. That little word, W-H-Y, you need to change one letter. You need to change the Y to an O. You need to change the Y to a who. For when you know who, when you know God, when you know His greatness, when you know His love for you, when you know that He is trustworthy, when you know who, suddenly, you don't need to know why. Because God does love you. And He does care about you. And He does have a plan. Even when it's hidden from view. Even when you don't know the reasons or the purpose. God does have a plan. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. And He can be trusted. This is the lesson we learn from Job. It gets hammered home to us even more definitively later. Notice though the rest of verse 15. Job will trust God. Though He slay me, I will trust Him. But Job still wants a reason. He still wants an answer to his question. He says, even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He's still pressing to know why. You could say Job passes the test, but in the process gets testy. That's what happens to Job. Job pledges to continue to serve God. But here's what can happen to a sufferer who keeps asking why. Sometimes they can continue to serve God, but they serve Him with a grudge. Do you know anybody who serves God with a grudge? This will be Job. Verse 16. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before Him. Job is saying, if I go before God, and if I live to tell about it, I was telling the truth. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. You know, I've just got to keep pressing these issues until I learn why. Verse 20. Only two things do not do to me, that I will not hide myself from you. Job has two requests of God. First, please don't withdraw your hand far from me. And second, 
Let not the dread of you make me afraid. You know, Job, he's lived a wonderful life, and he's enjoyed this beautiful intimacy with God. I mean, he's walked with God. He's known God personally and intimately. God has walked with him. And suddenly, all of this pain, all of this suffering that has barged into his life, it's created a static on the line between he and God. And Job longs for the intimacy and the familiarity that he once enjoyed with God. He doesn't want that to be taken from him. He says, then call and I will answer. Let me speak. Then you respond to me. I want to dialogue with you again, God. I want that closeness again. And I really need to know why. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. You know, just just show me what I did wrong. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Again, he screams, why? You know, this is so sad. Job has concluded that God regards him as his enemy. Notice this. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Job thinks that God considers him his enemy when just the opposite was true. God was so proud of Job that he staked his honor on Job's reactions. God loved Job. He was proud of Job. Here's the tragedy of a restricted theology. It steals away your assurance of God's love. It takes away that intimacy and that confidence that you have in God. Hey, just because bad things happen doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that you've done something wrong and that God isn't proud of you. There could be a reason hidden from view. Only heaven knows the whole story. And you have to remain confident in God. Verse 25 Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And at this point, this is all Job considers himself, just just a leaf floating in the wind. Will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. I mean, since there was no particular sin that Job could point to to blame his calamity, he figures that he must be paying for some youthful sins, some sins he committed when he was a teenager, you know, on that weekend down in Panama City or whatever. He says, you put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. I mean, Job wonders why God is picking on him. Or any man for that matter. Man, is such a fragile creature. What pleasure does God get to knock him down and to pick on man? Job continues to speak in chapter 14. Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Life is full of day, short of days and full of trouble. Man comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. I mean, this is Job's affirmation of original sin. 
Job knows he's a sinner. I mean, humans are born in sin. I mean, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Sinful humans give birth to humans who are sinners. Since his days are determined, the numbers of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. You know, it was Job's belief, and quite frankly, it's mine as well, that we all have a set number of days and months on the earth. And when your hourglass runs out of sand, that's it. Time's up. Our days are determined by God. We've all been given an appointed number. This is why we never know when our number's up. Remember King Hezekiah was the only man in the Bible who asked for an extension of his days. You remember that? He got an additional 15 years. And nothing good happened, by the way. Might as well be satisfied that God has given us a set number. And we need to make the most of the days He's given us. Verse 6. Look away from Him that He may rest, till like a hired man He finishes His day. For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender roots will not cease, though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground. Yet at the sin of water, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. I mean, you chop something down out in your yard, you think you finally got rid of it, and then suddenly the rains come, and oh my, it's sprouted all over again. Plants rejuvenate themselves. They shoot up again. But man dies and is laid away. I mean, once it's over for man, it's over. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lays down and does not rise. Humans only get one crack at life. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Now, I mentioned, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you don't make doctrine out of the words of a man who's got boils all over his body scratching them with a piece of pottery, sitting in a trash heap, moaning and groaning. I mean, this is not the guy that you, you take his words and you turn them into doctrine. Pain has warped Job's perspective. And here's a good example. Job isn't thinking beyond the grave. He isn't even thinking of his own soul. You see, he's only concerned with his boil-racked body. And that's why he says that once he dies, his body will not awake. It won't be roused from sleep. The Bible teaches us that the body will sleep, but not the spirit. That the moment our spirit leaves this body, it retains its consciousness. It goes either to heaven or to hell. The moment your spirit, your body will sleep, it sleeps in the ground. You know, when we bury you or when you bury me. I mean, we'll bury our body in the ground, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Our bodies will sleep. But our spirits will leave our bodies and immediately be conscious of their new surroundings. They'll have a new environment. And it'll either be heaven or it'll be hell. Verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave. That you would conceal me until your wrath is past. I mean, think of Job. Think of the suffering. Think of the boils, the pain. The suffering he's experienced. I mean, you can understand from Job's perspective how that death would be a welcome relief. 
that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. Now here's, this is interesting. Job gets a rejuvenation here of good doctrine. He does believe in a resurrection. He believes that the body will be resurrected in the future. And this is his hope. That his change will come. That he too will one day receive a body without boils. And and that's a great hope for us all, isn't it? That God will one day resurrect these bodies. That he'll give us new bodies. Bodies without cancer. And bodies that uh, don't get sick and don't become ill and don't corrupt. Incorruptible bodies, Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, you shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you cover my iniquity. You know, God, I wish you'd open the bag and show me what I've done wrong. But as mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as waters wears away stone, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. Job hopes in the resurrection, but his suffering has eroded his hope like water erodes a mountainside. I mean, his pain, all his calamity has washed away his hope. Verse 21, his sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he does not perceive it, but his flesh will be in pain over it in his soul or mourn over it. In other words, we don't live long enough to see how our sons turn out. This again is another frustration that we have in life. Well, chapter 15 begins with the second round of these accusations. Eliphaz steps back up to the microphone. Then Eliphaz, the Timonite, answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Now, if you look at a map, What was east of Edom? Desert. The east wind was an arid, dry, hot desert wind. And so once again, Eliphaz is accusing Job of being full of hot air. Calls him an east wind. Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. You know, it's interesting. Eliphaz accuses Job of never having prayed about his situation. Of course, that wasn't true. But what's odd is that none of Job's three friends in this whole dialogue ever bothered to stop and pray for their friend themselves. They never stop and pray for guidance. They never ask God to give them wisdom in their dealings with Job. Why do they not pray? They think they already know everything. They're know-it-alls. That's the kind of person who gives out counsel without praying. Let's not make that same mistake. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Again, he's saying these harsh things to a man who's just buried his ten kids. These guys are ruthless. Are you the first man who was born? 
or were you made before the heels? Who do you think you are, Job? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? And, and, you know, these are some of the same. You recognize some of these statements because they were some of the same statements that Job made about his friends. And this is how, how the conversation degenerates here. I mean, what starts out as kind of being a, a teaching session ends up being a debate, a hostile debate. And suddenly now they're exchanging barbs. They're sort of slinging mud back and forth at each other. These are friends going at it. You know, someone once said, Know why dogs have so many friends? They wag their tails and not their tongues. These guys are wagging their tongues. He says, Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And the words spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? What is that hidden temptation that keeps, keeps pulling you away from God? Again, you know, these things don't come upon somebody unless they've sinned. Now, evidently, Job's three friends were older than Job. Eliphaz here appeals to their gray hair. You know, both the gray hair and the aged are among us. I mean, we're older than your father, Job. You need to show us some respect. I mean, we're old guys. We, we know more than you do. I mean, these guys were so old, they knew Dr. Pepper when he was an intern. According to Eliphaz, age equals wisdom. Age equals wisdom. Isn't that amazing? We've been married for 28 years and she still laughs at my jokes. But Eliphaz, according to Eliphaz, age equals wisdom. But is that true? Is that always true? You ever met any dumb old men? Yeah? No offense. But, yeah, that's not necessarily true. Especially when it comes to spiritual realities. You know, I've met many an elderly person who knew very little about God. Who never bothered to open their Bible. Just because a man is older doesn't necessarily mean that he's wiser, especially in the ways of God. You remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul wrote to his young protege Timothy and he said, Let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You're young, Timothy, but you're wise. Let no one despise your youth. Verse 14. What is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. Does that sum up anybody you know? He drinks iniquity like water. What vivid imagery there. Man's taste for sin. Now here Eliphaz refers to the saints in contrast to men. Here the word saints are the angels. You remember a third of the angels rebelled with Satan. And were cast out of heaven. 
This defiled the heavens in God's eyes. Which leads to a very provocative thought. What part of the heavens is impure? He says here, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. What part of the heavens are not pure? I'm not sure. It is interesting in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 that we're told that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he reconciled all things to himself. And here's what, what it says. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. But when I read that, I always get puzzled. Because what is there in heaven that needed to be reconciled? Apparently something, because here Job says that the heavens are not pure in his sight. If you have more questions about that, ask Pastor James afterwards. Verse 17. I will tell you, hear me. What have I seen, I will declare. What wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Job, evil men suffer like you're suffering. And the rest of the chapter records Eliphaz's portrait his portrait of a wicked person. I'm going to sum it up. A wicked man is haunted by dreadful sounds. According to Eliphaz, he's stalked by the sword. He ends up poor. He's defiant against God. Notice there in verse 27, he says that the wicked man is fat. That's what Eliphaz says. He says that his waist is heavy with fatness. So if you're a fat guy, you got to watch out for you. He dwells by himself. His life is characterized by futility and ruin. Now, now again, not every fat guy is wicked. Santa Claus, he's not wicked. But, but you know, that's the, that's the kind of insights that Elizabeth has here. He's brought, painting in these broad brushes, and he's just making these accusations, and he's saying, saying things that... That, that some are true, but not, most of it's not true. But Eliphaz makes the point here in the end of this chapter that Job resembles the portrait of a wicked man. And this really angers Job. He's probably thinking, how low will you go to call a man evil just because he's a little chubby? And Job counters in chapter 16. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. What a classic line. Miserable comforters are you all. Guys, these are not the men that you appoint to make hospital calls for the church. That's not their ministry. Verse 3. Shall words of wind have no end? Isn't it interesting? Whenever these guys get started talking to each other, what's the first thing they accuse each other of? Being full of hot air. Being a blowhard. You know, you know, man, you're just full of wind. Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. 
But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. Job is saying that if the roles were reversed here, he'd do a much better job of comforting them than they're doing comforting him. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? But now he has worn me out. God's trial has just exhausted Job. You have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. I mean, Job has been worn thin. His leanness is of spirit and of courage and of faith. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. He points, he's sitting in the ash heap and he points to his three friends all standing pompously around him and he points his finger at him and says, Why do you guys hate me? Why do you gape at me? Why are you just standing there with your mouths open? Why are you striking me on the cheek and reproaching me? You, you can hear Job. He's getting riled. God has delivered me to the ungodly. And turn me over to the hands of these wicked men. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. Can you imagine saying something like that about God? And here's where Job really begins to step out of line. Remember, like we talked about last week, in asking why, Job loses his way. He loses his reverence for God. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. Job is accusing God of using him as target practice. You know, in sniper school, the Marines probably use pictures of Osama bin Laden's targets. Just my guess. But Job says that God uses his picture. That God uses him for target practice. Reminds me of the two Americans that went down to Mexico to open up a bungee jumping operation. They got a permit to set up this tower in the town square. And as they worked to erect the tower, a large crowd of curious locals all kind of gathered around them to watch what was going on. Finally, it came time for a test jump. One of the guys dove off of the platform. But when he bounced back up, his partner noticed that he was a little scraped. He said, oh, no, the cord must be too long. And so he tried to grab him, but he missed him. Well, the second time he bounced back up, he had some bruises and some broken ribs. Again, he tried to grab him, and he missed him. The third time, the guy was so badly beaten, he was nearly unconscious. This time, his sidekick kind of lunged out, and he grabbed him, and he, he pulled him to the platform, and he said, friend, he said, oh, my. I said, I'm so sorry. Was the cord too long? And that's when his partner answered, oh, no, the cord was fine, but what, what, what's a piñata? Job feels like God has mistaken him for a piñata. That he's become God's target. That he's getting beat up. And he doesn't know why. Again, have you ever asked God why? He says, he pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. I mean, I'm so full of mourning, I've just adopted, I've just changed my wardrobe. I've just, I've given away all my blue jeans and I just got sackcloth and ashes. It's what I wear every day. 
My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Job had that ashen look of death that had sort of fallen upon him. Job assumes that God must hate him. Remember, though, just the opposite was true. How can a man be so wrong about God? And yet many people are. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure, O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. In other words, let my cry ascend to heaven. For surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. Heaven knows that Job is innocent. You know, Job knows God sees all. If I can just talk to God, if I can just appeal to the court of heaven, I know I'll be acquitted. And this is why he wants an audience with God, because heaven knows the, stu- the true story. He has, it has all the evidence. You ever listen to Handle on the Law? It's a show on WSB. Bill Handle, I think he's a, a kind of a deadbeat lawyer. Probably doesn't have much of a practice, and all he can do is he, he gives out marginal legal advice, he calls it. But you call in, you tell your story, and he tells you whether you got a case or not. That's basically what it's about. Well, Job's three counselors have been telling him he's got no case. You know, your case is flimsy. You're guilty. But Job refuses to believe them. He's so sure of his innocence. If Job can just find a lawyer who will represent him, who will get his case on heaven's docket, Job will be acquitted of all wrongdoing. He says, my friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Job maintains his claims of innocence. If he can just find a mediator, an advocate, someone licensed to practice law in heaven. You don't get that off the billboard. If he could just find a lawyer who can take his case before God, he knows He'll be judged innocent. Job needs a friend in high places. He needs a representative before God. You know, it's interesting in our legal system, when a defendant lacks an attorney, the court is obligated to hire a court-appointed attorney, a public defender, to represent the accused. And the same is true in God's courtroom, interestingly enough. Usually a public defender is either a rookie or a has-been. But in God's court... The court-appointed attorney is the best that you can hire because Jesus has now become our advocate. He is the one who's taken our case before the bar, and we have been judged forgiven. Job says in chapter 17, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Once again, Job has despaired of life. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? Job wants to strike a deal with anybody who can deal with God. For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. But he who has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. Can you imagine? Job has become a symbol of derision. He's become an object of mockery. 
People walk by the trash heap. They spit on him. They call him names. Have you noticed that at times it becomes cool to tell a certain type of joke? I mean, first there were Pollock jokes. Then there were Yo Mama jokes. And, and lately there have been blonde jokes. Well, in us at the time, everybody told Job jokes. He became a byword. He says, my eye has also grown dim because of sorrow. And all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this. And the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way. And he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Job's confession, he will hold to his innocence. You know, chapter 17 is really an emotional roller coaster. Job starts out the chapter trying to strike a deal with God. He ends it in despair. In fact, why don't you read the rest of the chapter tonight? Job wonders that if he dies, if the grave becomes his home, and if the worm becomes his relative, that's how Job puts it, if he dies, he wonders, will hope die with me? And in chapter 18, Bildad the Shuhite steps back up to speak another time. And that's where we'll pick it up next week.